Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. My friends, I have with us today Rabbi Yokoff Wolby, host of the Jewish Life Podcast, Parsha Podcast, the Jewish History Podcast, the Ethics Podcast, and the Mitzvah Podcast. And my dear Rabbi, that I, oh, I have so much gratitude for. Wait, wait, wait. What happened with Torah 101? Was it booted? <laughs> <laughs> and Torah 101. <laughs> All my beloved podcasts, my beloved rabbi, thank you so much, rabbi, for joining us. It's such a delight to be here. I'm so glad to be in your office again. And thank you so much for uh, interviewing me today. I'm really excited to be here. I appreciate it. And what I want to share with the audience is that you just recently released a book, your first book, I guess your first book written in English for us regular folk. And it's called Upon a Ten String Harp. And I want to get in and talk about that because... You lent me a copy as there's only one copy here in the United States at this point. More to come, more that I know that you'll be sharing with your students. And I started to delve into this book and saw the structure of it. And I, I saw a lot of the lectures, pieces of the lectures that you've given to me over the years, but nicely, succinctly laid out and was really a macro architect of our life. And what we do and why we do everything we do as a Jew. So I'll, I'll let you just, if you could talk about why you wanted to write the book, you know, what you saw as a, uh, a gap or a void in the, the Torah literature out there that motivated you to write this piece. So thank you so much for having me. And uh, thank you for your kind words about the book. You know, the book I started writing it in, I think 2015 or 2016. It went through like 20 revisions and updates and uh, various rounds of editing and proofreading and adding stuff and subtracting stuff and organizing it and structuring it. Uh, so it's really unbelievable for me to see it actually on your desk being uh, printed and, and you're reading it and we're talking about it. So it's a real delight. Uh, what inspired me to write it? It's a, it's a very difficult question because it's almost like a journey and you start off the journey and you have maybe a vision of what it's going to end up as. But ultimately, it takes all these twists and, twists and turns. It takes on a life of its own. And the book that is on your desk is a very different book that I had originally envisioned. So my, my idea was, it was actually based upon, like you mentioned, there are were, there were some pieces of the podcasts. You've heard some of the ideas before, but it's all organized together. Right. I actually write in, uh, in the acknowledgement section of the book. I thank all the podcasts. Listeners for being the unwitting guinea pigs where I tested the ideas on, but the idea kind of developed when I, I, I prepared a series on the 10 elements or 10 components or 10 stages, 10 different types of emuna, of faith. It was a lecture series we must have done maybe five, six, seven years ago. Right. And I really liked the idea. And the more I delved into it, the bigger it became. And I said, well, let's write a book. This is a great subject to write a book on. And eventually the, uh, the subject matter brought in to include really what it's all about. We have Torah, we have mitzvahs. And yes, we could talk about the divinity of the Torah, why we do it and the lessons of, of what, uh, you know, of, of how it impacts us. But 
on a very fundamental level, what is changing in me when I do a mitzvah? Like what is actually being transformed in a person? What are the risks, so to speak, that I am avoiding with Torah mitzvahs? What is the big, big picture of what it's all about? That's how the book ended up. And it kind of, again, like I said, it, it, it just stretched itself out and expanded itself over the course of these, you know, 20 iterations of the book. And I'm very happy with how it ended up. I, I can't say that I started off saying, hey, where's the void? You know, it wasn't like, uh, to be honest with you, someone asked me, he's like, well, who's the target audience? So my answer to that is intelligent Jews who are proficient in English. Uh, intelligent and people who are interested in ideas. That's the, that's the real answer. But I didn't start off saying, hey, there's an underserved population right. that they need this. I, I wrote it for myself. That's the true, the true answer. This is the book that help me iron out these questions. And I feel uh, I'm very proud and privileged that it actually uh, resulted in this uh, in this book that, that's on your desk. I still can't believe it's true. It's still kind of surreal. But ultimately, that was my focus. And I wasn't thinking so much about the audience. It was more, what would be a book, A, that I would want to write? B, a book that I would want to read and I'm really happy uh, if it could be enjoyed by everyone. By everyone, but that wasn't. I wasn't working like uh, you know, dictating from the top, right? That this is the way things are supposed to be. When it comes to Torah, you're not doing uh, uh, testing and and doing uh, surveys and finding out demand. It's it's good Torah. It's Hashem's Torah. These are things Jews need to know. Get it out there. This was not A/B tested, right? Exactly. So, I mean, I would say the target audience is every Jew. I mean, when I was, you know, I've just started reading it, but I, I've looked over the framework and the chapters and, and I sort of know the overall structure for it. And if and all I kept thinking about was if every Jew read this, I don't care if they're fully observant or they never been observant. If they've been, if they're fully observant living, grew up in a Jewish community, it's going to bring so much more meaning to everything they do as a Jew. And if they've never been exposed to living a Torah lifestyle, they're going to know the benefit to living a Torah lifestyle. So my hope is that every Jew gets this book and reads this book. Yeah, absolutely. And and I even wrote this in the introduction that um, someone's level of observance and background in Jewish knowledge and practice and observance, the, the content of, the, of this book applies across the board. Uh, because, you know, I went through the yeshiva system and there's little pieces of these ideas that you hear, you pick it up, you kind of pick it up from the environment almost in a, in a yeshiva atmosphere. But to see it all organized in one place, starting with the questions, so to speak, that we begin the book, we begin the book with a series of questions. And over the course of the 33 chapters, the objective is to answer those questions satisfactorily and to build one painting that's just this, this one continuous narrative, this one flow that arrives at the answer. And then you could zoom out and see the whole picture and see how everything fits in together. That was uh, what the, the book ended up uh, becoming. And I do agree with you. And maybe I'm patting myself on the back a little too much, but I do agree with you that, that, that I think that there will be tremendous benefit for people uh, who, uh, who want to know what it's all about. You know, if you, if you're growing up observ- observant, you do all the mitzvahs. It's a lot of hassle. <laughs> There's a lot of rules, a lot of details. And the book doesn't get into that, those questions. You know, any, I didn't focus on any specific mitzvah or why we do it. It's all about the big picture. And that is you're a human. 
You got a body and a soul. You're going to die. Where does Torah and mitzvot and your soul and the afterlife and your pre-life, where does it fit into this whole picture? Right. And kind of putting all those pieces in place, understanding what you're made up of, what happens, what's the dynamic with the body and the soul and the Yitzharan and how, how does a mitzvah affect it and how does Torah affect it and how, you know, how does a sin, God forbid, affect it and how it all works and how it all interplays with each other. That's the objective. The reason I love this is because I'm a, I'm a top down guy. It's the way I always approached every field of study from economics to Torah because you know, when you learn things like Halakha, which has been a big focus of mine last year, and I learned, for instance, last year, that if it's raining on Shabbos, grab the raincoat, don't walk outside and open up the umbrella. But to know why that one act, that choice of the raincoat versus the umbrella is going to make such a huge difference on my life and, 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 and fulfill the sort of mission that we have here. And that's what you're sort of doing is you're painting, you're painting this, this infrastructure, this architecture for why we do everything we do. And I will say too, the one of the things I love about it is my very first rabbi in my life, before I met you, before I knew about the Torch Center, well, I didn't think there was any Torah observant Jews in the state of Texas. I bought a Tanakh with no commentary, tried to delve into Parsha, got lost came across a book by Ram Call called The Way of God. And I read that and I read everything that Ram Call wrote, or I read a lot of what Ram, Ram Call wrote. And the way he wrote, I loved it because it was very linear. He used just the right amount of words to convey the idea and nothing extra. And he just layered on one idea after another idea so the reader could absorb it. And when I was reading your book, I was like, it's exactly what you're doing. And I love it because there are such deep concepts that you want to convey an idea very clearly. You provide a nice summary in the chapter so the, the reader knows, digest this, savor it in your mouth and digest it. Now go to the next topic. And you're layering on these ideas, which are so crucial for the reader to really absorb what they're reading. So in the end, they haven't just read your book. They've absorbed these ideas into their daily life. Well, that's, of course, a very high praise. You know, the Ramchal wrote like 150 books and he passed away before he was 40. So I imagine he didn't have much time to add all those extra words. He had to be very, you know, very sparing in his use of uh, of words. But of course, that's the highest praise I've ever gotten in my life. So thank you so much for that. But the, that was the objective. The objective is... I even wrote this in the introduction that I'm not going to, I had to with, you know, withhold the temptation to add all kinds of extra filler stuff. I, I cut that all out. You know, they say that many books could just be an essay and many essays could be a tweet. <laughs> You've heard that line? Right. Yeah. So I didn't do any of that. It wasn't like I had my book and then I added stuff. I had the book and I just cut and cut and cut ruthlessly until you ended up with what you have. And you know, someone asked me, what's the book about? I said, well, if, if I tell you what the book is about in its entirety, it would take me 85,000 words because that's how many words are in the book because I tried to cut out anything that was extra. I don't know if I succeeded or how well I succeeded, but I appreciate that. But again, besides for just the the, the precise use of words that I, I strove for, the ideas are, are really built upon each other. We start off the the book – um, with uh, you know a series of questions, and it's all it's all based upon teachings in the Talmud and the Midrash. We take a, like a teaching in the Talmud, and we 
analyze it, ask questions, and try to understand what the essential idea being conveyed there, and use that as a building block for the next idea, and the next idea, and the next idea, until eventually you can see the entire edifice, the entire structure. And again, I, I, I don't think I've been praised like this in my entire life. I probably have to delete this from the podcast. It'll just get to my head. But uh, very kind uh, for you to say that, and it means uh, a great deal to me. So, so when you wrote the book, it's it's built into five main parts. Talk a little bit about those 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 parts, and give the uh, listeners sort of an understanding of the framework of where you're going with this book. Okay, so part one is almost like a diagnosis. We are here to do mitzvos. Mitzvos help us perfect ourselves. The major says. Well, if we need mitzvahs to perfect ourselves, it must mean that we are imperfect. There's something wrong. There's something lacking. There's something flawed about us. So part one, part one, I think it's seven chapters, is dedicated to trying to, to, to diagnose and isolate exactly what it is that's wrong. Where is the flaw? Where does it lie? And what are the potential dangers if we allow this uh, flaw to be unaddressed? If we allow this malady, whatever it is, this, this, this flaw that Torah misses a coming to fix. If we allow it to run amok, what's going to go wrong? That's part one. Part one is almost the diagnosis. Part two is dedicated to the solution. So we say that we have Torah, we have mitzvahs to perfect ourselves. We know in part one why we need to perfect ourselves. Part two is, okay, how exactly are Torah and mitzvahs a tailored solution? How do they, so to speak, interact with the problem, so to speak, that is presented in part one. So I like to think of this as, you know, you have a, a physician. Someone goes to visit a physician. Right. And uh, they have a problem. They have an ailment. So the physician says, well, you have this and this illness, something-itis, never heard of it. And here's the uh, fancy, long, uh, unpronounceable medication that you need. Take this prescription and go to the pharmacy and you'll be healed. So one patient takes the pharmacy takes the prescription, goes to the pharmacy, and takes the medicine and is healed. And then there's the second kind of patient. They call him in Israel, the nudnik. He says, wait a minute, physician, doc, tell me exactly what is the problem. Explain this illness to me. Explain the, di- the diagnosis. Don't just give me a fancy name of a word that I never heard of. I want to know, understand exactly how it's interacting with me, what, what the threat is, where does it lie, etc. And then, oh, here's the prescription. Tell me, how is the prescription going to be interacting with the disease? Where else is it going to affect me? How is it going to change me? What exactly is the mechanism, so to speak, of this remedy? This book is working for principle that Torah mitzvahs are there to fix our flaws. Some people say, you know what, I'll just do Torah and mitzvahs and my flaws will be fixed. If that is your attitude, God bless you, you don't need this book. If you're like patient number two and you say, wait a minute, I'm flawed. Where, where's the flaw? What exactly is the flaw? Where does it lie? What are the risks? Explain to me the disease. That's part one. Explain to me how the remedy works out and how it addresses the flaw. That's part two. Part three is almost like it's probably the most practical part of the book because most of it, like you said, is just the the architecture to understand the concept, the, the construct, so to speak, of how Torah and mitzvahs work and interrelate with a person. Part three is the most active part, uh, I would say the most practical part of the book where we talk about, okay, now that we understand a little bit of how this works, essentially part three is taking a teaching in the Talmud. It's just two lines in the Talmud and it's like uh, five or six chapters in the book to understand exactly, like kind of um, 
it's the actualization, so to speak, of what we find out in part two. Part four looks at the giants of yore. You know, we, we're proposing an understanding of what Torah and mitzvahs are and, and, and the, you know, the highest level possible, the 50,000 foot view. Part four says, okay, Abraham, how does he fit into this? Moses, how does he fit into this? The great Sadiqim, the great righteous people of yore, prophets, how does it all fit in? So we look at the giants of our history and see how they fit into this paradigm. And part five. Right. So, so in part four, you're sort of like laying out like, this is what it looks at completion. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And it goes, it goes all the way back to part one. When we look at the flaws featured in man in part one and how they are so to speak, outlined, we look at what it looks like when it's fixed and it all fits perfectly. It's like a perfect match between, you know, Moshe and Abraham and, and to see exactly what they became and how exactly their greatness is expressed. Part five talks about the afterlife. The belief, the central belief that we have is that our soul existed before we were alive. Our soul will exist after we are dead. That is the basic principle of our belief. Okay, what happens to us after we die? So incidentally, I'll tell you, I did do a recent podcast in Torah 101, the podcast channel you forgot. Torah 101, <laughs> I did a podcast this week, what happens after you die? But the big picture, the basic idea is after you die, well, it depends. If you're really righteous, you end up in a really, really good place. If you're really wicked, it's not as good. Right? That we know. But the book is based upon the idea that mitzvos and Torah – that's the best thing you could do to stockpile reward and merit for the next word, for the afterlife. So what happens after you die? And specifically, Olam Haba, which is the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal. It's not the afterlife per se. It's not Gehenna, Ganeid, and paradise resurrection. Even the resurrection is related to it. But the end goal is Olam Haba. So understanding what does it mean, Olam Haba? What is this idea of spiritual pleasure? How does it fit in to the... Uh, the principles essentially laid out, delineated in the book. And finally, the book concludes with two or I think two chapters that talk about, okay, if getting to Olaba is the goal, what do I need to do? What are the various different paths to get there? And the final epilogue of the book, even though it's not called the epilogue, because the publisher said, you don't have an epilogue in a nonfiction book, but that's okay. The final <laughs> part of the final chapter of the book is, kind of wrapping up the entire book together from beginning to end and showing how, you know, Adam before his sin and the beginning of the Torah is, so to speak, completed by Moshe at the end of the Torah. And thus uh, concludes the book with the words, may we merit to praise God upon a 10 stringed harp, which is how we praise God in Olam Abba. So talk about that, the, the name of the book. Where did that come from? So... In the introduction, I write that there's really three reasons why I named this book, uh, Alei Asar, which means upon a ten-stringed harp, based upon a verse in Psalms, in Tehillim. The verse says that when, in, in the future, well, let me, let me set this up. Uh, well, the verse talks about singing the praise of God in the morning, saying over God's kindness, in the morning to say, say over God's kindness, and your, your faith in the night, Upon different musical symbols, musical instruments. So one of them is called an aso, which is a ten-string harp, and then a novel, and then a kinor, a hidayon, and a kinor, different musical instruments that we're going to praise God with. And the Talmud says that in this world, we praise God with a, with a harp comprised of seven strings. And then in the Messianic times, 
will praise God with a harp comprised of eight strings. Oh, and an alamaba. We're going to praise God upon a ten-stringed harp. We're going to praise God with a ten-stringed harp. Aleasar with a ten-stringed harp. Well, this whole book is based upon the the again the principle that we're going to Allah about. We want to make sure we get there. We want to make sure we end up praising God with a ten-stringed harp. That's the first reason why I got this title. The second reason is because it's a it's a little bit of a tribute. Uh, a to the idea that kind of is at the roots of the book, and that is that those ten levels of faith, those ten levels of amuna okay. that I talked about, which even though that was the the initial, so to speak, seed that germinated into the book, all of those ideas are actually found in the book, kind of scattered throughout the book. You can find these ten different types of faith. It's kind of embedded in the book itself. So upon a ten-stringed harp is kind of invoking, it's like an homage, as they say, right. to the original theme of the book. Uh, moreover, my grandfather, Blessed Memory, he wrote a famous book. He wrote many books, but one of his famous books is called Ale, Ale Shur, which is not, it's a different word, which means on top of a shur. What does a shur mean? Shur means a wall, a rampart. And this is talking about how the girls were looking at Joseph from atop the rampart. He's being paraded through the city. and Everyone wanted to get a glimpse of, of Joseph. And therefore, they climbed on top of the ramparts to see him. And uh, now, in in Hebrew, Aleish Shur, it's spelled this, the same word. Aleish is the first word, which means upon, and Shur means a wall upon the rampart. But this is Asar, which is a totally different word, but it's, it looks kind of similar, and right. it is a little bit of a, of a wink and a nod and a tribute to my grandfather's book because my grandfather had such a big impact on my life. And finally. There is an ancient tradition going back to the mess to, to the times of the of the Mishnaic era to to have a title of a book that somehow invokes your name. And Alei Asar, upon a tensoring harp, is the exact gematria of Yaakov Ben Harav Avraham Volbe Jacob. That's me, the son of Abraham will be. And therefore I said, it's too good to be true. The exact gematria, this is the name for the book. Are you thinking about Book two. <laughs> the I know your plan. I know you're ambitious. So I know uh, uh, you're still probably reveling in the excitement that this book is just uh, hitting the U.S. shores soon uh, for dissemination. But are you thinking about ideas as you wrote this? Like what would be a, a next challenge or, or a, a next idea you'd like to get into writing? So the quick answer is yes. Not only that, I started writing it. Uh, but what I'll tell you is like this. When you write, when you write a book, so I've been told, and I, I really buy this, that the closest thing a man can get to having a baby is writing a book. Now, writing the book is one part of the, of the process. And my, my line, my contribution to that is if writing a book is like having a baby, then publishing a book is like raising a teenager. Because, you know, like you're dealing with, you know, trying to find it, all the typos and, you know, you're, you're proofreading it again and again and again. You're just making minor improvements and you deal with a lot of frustration because things are out of your hands and, you know, so. And also it's, you're also dealing with things that are out of your expertise. Like, I don't know anything about uh, book covers and, uh, and, and t- the title, titling was something, even though now it sounds, it's amazing. It's the right title. I know that for sure. But to come up with the right title, the finalized title, like I, for example, like, Upon a ten-string harp, much more than with a ten-string harp. Even though it's kind of both of them are good translations of Aleasar, 
I felt like a pawn, a 10 string tarp had a little bit more gravitas to it. Uh, so I just switched, I switched the title kind of, uh, at the end of, uh, of, of production. Uh, but you know, you learn a lot about how this is done. Publishing for like a Torah audience or a Jewish audience, it's such a small little niche that it's not really a moneymaker. You know, I even had to get donations to people to cover the expenses of just publishing the book. Uh, so I'm not thinking about the, you said basking, the reveling of the glory. I'm not really thinking about it. I almost felt, and this may sound strange, but I felt like I had no choice but to write the book. It was almost like I was compelled to do something that was just a terrible idea, but I just were, I was compelled to do it. And, and you don't even understand why you're like, why am I doing this? Uh, honor, it's not going to give me so much honor. Uh, prestige, I don't think so. I'm not going to make a lot of money off it if I make anything off it. It's a ton of work. It's a ton of work. Right. Why do you do it? You know, I could just make a podcast and it'll get a pretty decent audience, uh, I think. I hope. So why do it? It's almost like I, I had no choice. I had no choice. I, I felt that this was, this was burning in me and there was no way for me to ever be satisfied about this unless, unless I wrote it. Right. Now my new book, am I, am I breaking news here? Are we yes, breaking news? Breaking news. The new book is a very different structure. This book, it's not a collection of isolated ideas. There's almost no isolated. There's a few ideas maybe that came, that popped up that I put in the footnotes, but it's not an isolated ideas. It's not like, oh, these ideas are just nice ideas. Let's put them all on, uh, on a book. It's one idea. It's one process. It's like you said, one architecture, one framework. And there is a continuity from chapter one to chapter 33. My next book is not going to be like that. It's going to be every chapter is to be discrete, even though the big picture is going to be one general theme, but Please God, I, you know, with the help of the Almighty, if I write this, please God. But the that that kind of book, I think, is a lot easier to, easier to write because every every chapter is is kind of self contained, siloed off by itself. As long as it's part of the same general theme, it's it's connected. But this here, chapter one, chapter two, you, you, all, you know, there's I'm building ideas here, one after another, trying to arrive at the goal of understanding really the big picture of Torah, mitzvos. The soul, the body, the etzera, how they all interrelate, what are the mechanisms, what are the interrelationships, how do they interface with each other, and how there's the ripple effect of you making choices and how it affects every other part of this very, very complex and integrated system. Wonderful. So how does, how is someone going to go about getting a hold of this book? Someone listening. So we, we used a, a publisher in Israel, out of Israel, called Mosaica Press. Uh, they uh, were wonderful, wonderful uh, publishing house. And uh, the book is already for sale in Israel. However, however, my dad told me he went to every store and they already sold out. So that's a problem. Wow. Uh, maybe I was a little bit, uh, I was a little bit maybe too diffident about the books that, you know, how many books to print. I'm like, ah, who's going to want to buy it? Who's going to want to buy it? You know, I printed as, as very relatively few copies. And as a result of that, I've heard it's, uh, it's sold out in Israel. But, uh, January 23rd, the publisher told me they put it on a boat and now it's on the way to the United States. Uh, like you said, I have one copy, but besides for that, I don't have any copies, but I will tell you the torch center torch. We bought 400 copies of the book. And, uh, as you know, today we're having a fundraiser at givetorch.org and every 
every donor of more than $500, $500 or more, is going to get a free signed copy. I'm going to sit down once all the books arrive, and I'm going to sign them and inscribe them until my arm feels totally numb. <laughs> and I'm going to send uh, a free copy to everyone who gives $500 or more. This is an organization that people anyhow want to support. Right. So I feel like this gives them a l- nice little, nice little nudge to get over the hump uh, and, and, and to, um, and to, uh, to give a nice and generous contribution. It's going to be for sale in the United States. Uh, we're using a, um, a distributor called the Feldheim distributors. They are one of the biggest Jewish book distributors. Yeah. It's available in all the Jewish bookstores. Uh, it's also available online upon a 10 string tarp. If it's, if it's out of stock, if it's sold out, it's my fault because I printed too few of them. But I kind of like that in a weird way that it has a certain air of uh, exclusivity. Right. I like it. But uh, we hope to have uh, some books. So if someone wants to buy a book, first of all, thank you. How um, flattering is that for me to know that someone wants to buy the book? But uh, send me an email, rebelwomenship.com. I uh, should be able to have uh, one available. we ship it to you. But uh, ideally, my ideal plan is that the people who love what we do, who listen listen to our podcast and study from us and want to you know contribute, just need a little nudge, a little encouragement to make a nice donation. Right now at GiveTorch.org, every donation over five hundred dollars will get a free signed copy. Maybe we'll give a copy as well for people who give a lower. I'm not promising anything, but definitely if it's over five hundred dollars, we're going to send you a free signed copy. I'm going to sign it. Even though I really want my wife to kind of fill it in for me, just pretend that she's me because like, oh, I'm arms <laughs> But I, I'm going to sign it. And uh, and again, thank you uh, to everyone who's who's listening who wants to uh, support the great work of Torch at givetorch.org and wants to uh, you know engage with more of what we do. It's just such an honor. It's, it's an amazing it's an amazing feeling to me to know that there are people who want to spend time listening to me talk. I take them my kids to listen to me. <laughs> and then somehow in the podcast, people, people want to listen. It's just, it's really, it's really gratifying. And frankly, it's sometimes mystifying, <laughs> mystifying and, and certainly humbling uh, to know that people want to listen and enjoy and want to partake in what we do and want to contribute towards it. GiveTorch.org. And again, the book is called Alei Asar Upon a Ten Stringed Harp. And uh, I can't believe it's actually written. It's kind of surreal to hold it. It really was a strange feeling when it arrived in the mail because, you know, the, Publisher, they ship it all in boxes in, in a ship. Right. And uh, they sent me one copy via airmail. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, wow, they really came out stunning. <laughs> it really looks great. And uh, I don't think there's any typos. I haven't found any. I've looked. I haven't found any. So that makes me really happy because I want to – if we're going to do it, you want to make sure you, you do it right. It's, you can't really edit it uh, in post like we do we do in the podcast. <laughs> right, right. Well, I'm I'm – very excited to finish reading uh, the book. I mean, just looking over it, I, I I see those lectures and pieces over the years I've heard from you and to have it all organized. I can assure the listeners that this is a book that will have a very meaningful impact on their life. Well, provided that they read it. Now, I want to warn everyone. I don't want to be under false pretenses here. I don't think it's the easiest book to read. It's not like one of the, someone told me when I, I gave a, like an early uh, manuscript to someone. It's like, this is not the kind of book you take back to your feet on the couch and you just read with half an eye, you know, while munching right. on something. This is, this is a real book you got to study. So I don't want people to think that this is like a nice Malcolm Gladwell where I'm going to tell you know, nice stories. Uh, this is a book you got to work. We're working through real big questions together. But, uh, I, I, I do agree with you. 
and I hope I'm not being too hubristic, that if someone does read it and, and um, dwell upon the ideas that we talk about, it'll be very transformational. And I, and I will remind the listener that the, the way you structured it was you really did take one concept at a time, really explained it well. You write a nice summary. You know, the, the reader can, you know, close the book, contemplate that one idea, absorb it and go to the next one. And it, and the way you structure it, you are taking very lofty concepts and giving it to us in a way that we can internalize it. So I appreciate that. Well, thank you. And, uh, and I appreciate everything you've done for Torch. I, you know, I've been listening to your podcasts from the very early days. I think I've been learning from you now for 10 years. Something now? like that. Very I'm close. About to reach my 10 year anniversary here at Torch. Yeah. <laughs> in so, April. So it's, I mean, and, and beyond just, uh, absorbing all your podcasts, but the, the level of, uh, responsiveness to all my questions, especially early on. You know, last night I was, uh, having a, a scotch and a cigar. And I remember like seven years ago, as I was just learning kosher from you, you told me that we don't eat bugs. Our deal is we don't eat bugs. We don't eat them. They won't eat us when we die. Remember that? You told me that. And I was like, okay, no bugs. And I got a nice bottle of scotch and I was sitting in the back patio. I cut my cigar, lit it up, and I looked at my scotch, and there was a bug in it. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, but I remember I, I texted you, you know, one of my 911 texts. Rabbi, you know, there's a bug in here. Do I throw it out? The ice is melting. Time-sensitive situation. Please help. And you immediately responded back, just take the bug out. Throw it out, enjoy the scotch. <laughs> but that is what Rabbi Wolby did for me, like nonstop and for so many people. Um, and that's what all the rabbis at Torch do. Uh, so please definitely support this organization as we do our one time a year fundraiser to keep the lights on for another year. What's the website again, Dan? You tell me. Uh, GiveTorch.org. And I want to point out just to your uh, scotch with the bug question. The R and Torch. Do you know what the R and Torch stands for? What's that? So it's Torah Outreach, T-O, Torch, Resource Center of Houston. So the actual name of Torch is a resource, and that's what we strive to be, to be a resource for our listeners, for our students. Everyone who reaches out to me knows that I get back to every email. Sometimes it takes a while, every email. Uh, most of you already have my cell phone number. Uh, if you don't, I don't know. Why don't you have my number? Most of you already have it. And, uh, you know, I answer texts uh, every single day. So don't hesitate to reach out. We're a resource. It's in our name. And the only way we can be such a resource is thanks to your generosity at givetorch.org. Dan, it was such a joy being here. Thank you so much for reading the book and saying such nice things and for interviewing me here today. And uh, um, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you for being here, being on the show, and for writing this book and everything you do for the Jewish people. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.